Well, as we begin, just a few updates, uh, if you'll permit me, just for a few minutes here. The first, a shoulder update. Some of you are visiting, you're wondering why I have a sling. Others of you have heard me say a few things already. I'm doing fine. Tomorrow will be a month since the surgery uh, that I had. I probably got three, four more weeks to be wearing this sling and not moving my arm. Um, I will tell you, just if you can humor me here for a minute, I told this to a few of you. I saw the doctor for the follow-up, my surgeon. And it's not like he was being mean or rude with me when I would see him, but he was very business. And, I, you know, he didn't want to know about what my favorite books or my hobbies. He just, you know, he had other people to see. But um, I see him, and, and I go in for my follow-up after the surgery. He comes in with a big smile. He says, how are you doing? Everybody wants to know. And I'm like, why does everybody want to know how I'm doing? <laughs> like, it doesn't seem like a good sign. He goes, well, that was a huge surgery. And I'm thinking, I don't want to be the guy <laughs> that, uh, like, we never get to cut people like we cut you. So, um, so that, that, that at least validated why the first two weeks was so miserable. So uh, I'm, I'm a lot better now. I feel great. It's just awkward wearing a sling all the time. Um, second update is just on the pastoral search. Many of you will know this, and then, but honestly, there's been a lot of new people over the last month or two. Um, so, so you might not know this. This summer, a pastor, a longtime pastor at our church, transitioned away to another church, left well, nothing wrong, so to speak. Um, but that means it left us with a decision of how we are going to go forward and, and refill that role, because we've been short-staffed here for, for uh, many months, it feels like, at least. And so, really, we entered into this five-step process, so I'll just kind of tell you where we're at and where things are going. Step one was dis- discernment phase to figure out, okay, do we rehire that same role or do we do something different? And a lot of prayer, a lot of listening to many of you, and it, what we decided would be best for our church would to hire uh, a different role than we had, and it will be an associate pastor of connections, so someone to help get people involved. We think... Uh, many of you, at least, I think, feel like our church is very welcoming during that first six weeks. It's often a lot harder between six weeks and six months to know how to get involved. And that's an area I think we really could improve. So if you're in that window, just know you don't not feel involved. That, that's, that's how probably a lot of people feel. And so in this time, just kind of make yourself as uh, available and known as you can. And we would love to be helpful to that. But that was phase one, a discernment phase. Second phase has been an advertising phase. We crafted a job description. We've been promoting it on various websites. We've been collecting resumes and cover letters. Received about 35 applicants or so. Many of them are very gifted individuals. And uh, phase two will be narrowing that. That begins on Friday. We've been advertising it till November 15th. We're going to start zeroing that in on a handful of candidates, maybe five, six, seven, eight. And then through the early interview process, move that down to two or three, and then move that down to one or two. Then we'll be handing that candidate or candidates back to the elder team, the pastor elders here at the church. There's a men and women on the search team. I'm a part of it. I'm not leading it. Um, then they'll go back to the elders for some more theological vetting, and then we'll present that person to the candidate, um, uh, the church for, for affirmation, and then hiring. So it's, it's, it's discernment, advertise, narrow, zero, and then hire, we hope, Lord willing. So that's where we're at. We think there's a number of people that could fit the role very well. It's just going to be, I would love for you to be praying for us to help us figure out who might be that individual that the Lord would be calling here. So that's some updates um, that, that some of you may have wanted to know. As we turn our attention to God's word, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Just one comment before I read the passage and pray. We've been going through the book of Acts, and, and honestly, we're going a little slower than we're going to be going uh, as the book picks up speed. We've, this is 
really, I think the third of five sermons we're going to do from chapter two. Now, I'll tell you as a preacher, every passage on Tuesday feels difficult to me. <laughs> and usually by Sunday, they, they get more clear. Um, I will tell you this one, uh, just as I wrestled with it all week and in the previous weeks, uh, had a difficulty that I couldn't almost name, but, but now I feel like I can say why this one felt so difficult. And I think it's this. The audience that Peter was preaching to had significant differences from the audience I'm preaching to this morning. It's an evangelistic message that Peter preaches here. So something happens, and I'll tell you that in a minute, but he stands up and he preaches, and he preaches about their sin and God's salvation. That should be easy, right? Except that audience was very unfamiliar with Jesus and very familiar with the Old Testament. And when I think about our church, even if you're not a Christian, you're, you're, you have some familiarity with who Jesus is. You're aware of the Christmas story, you're aware of the Easter story, but you're probably not near as familiar with the Old Testament as these individuals were. Therefore, as we dive into this passage and Peter gets into, well, some might call it the weeds of a couple Old Testament passages, it might feel a little obscure to you. I'm gonna do my best, but it will be a sermon where we reflect on the work of Jesus Christ and what it means for Christianity and for Christians. It's not a sermon where there's gonna be 10 application points for your marriage or your workplace or something like that. It's going to be a day to celebrate who Jesus is and why that matters. So I invite you to follow along with me as I read from Acts chapter two. I'm gonna read verse 22 through verse 36 and then we'll pray that God would be our teacher. Peter begins, which is really the middle of his sermon, but he begins for us this morning. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, that is concerning the Savior, concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you have not abandoned my soul to Hades nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, Peter says, that he, that is David, both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he therefore foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, I think meaning those who were standing up there preaching with him earlier in the passage, verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that is the Christ, has poured 
out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now here's his conclusion, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. I invite you to pray with me as we begin to study this passage together. Would you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, we began the service by singing all creatures of our God and King joined together in singing songs of praise. Lord, for us to do that, we have to have some awareness of what you have done in the person of Jesus that might cause us to sing. So this morning, as we reflect on this sermon once given many years ago to an audience in some ways different than us, I pray that we would see our own sin and our salvation in a way that might cause us to sing for joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're going to go on a road trip, there's some unwritten etiquette that if you're in the passenger seat, if you're riding shotgun, you have the responsibility of doing what? Helping to navigate. There you go. Now, if you took a road trip in in, in my car uh, with our family and you're riding shotgun, you have the additional responsibility of doling out snacks at certain intervals, rationing water. It's 15 hours to grandma, grandma and grandpa's house, so you get one ounce of water for every year you've been alive. I'm only sort of joking. Uh, It's a long ways away till the middle of Iowa. So, um, yes, there are other responsibilities. Occasionally, you know, smacking the kids around a bit. So I have a lot of kids. And no one really smacks them around. But, but you have the responsibility of helping to navigate. And so part of navigating is you're looking at the, your, your phone, your GPS, your paper, perhaps a paper map, some of you. And, and, and you're looking at signs. You're trying to read the signs, right? So, okay, that one's too far away. It's getting closer. Okay, not this exit, the next exit sort of thing. Or that tractor trailer's in the way and you've got to move your head and look and say, okay, that is our exit. I'm reading the signs, So I want that to be a metaphor here as we um, look at this passage. This is a passage, this is a sermon, a portion of Peter's sermon that has to do with signs, not road signs per se, but signs about what God um, was doing among them and we might say among us, signs. The thing with signs though is that even when we see them, there's a question of do we understand them? And then if we understand them, there's then the question of, will we submit to the God who's showing us these signs? It's a passage, or that's a question that hangs over this 
passage. Now, I thought about reading these, but with communion and other things, uh, I'm just going to allude to these passages. But in John chapter 4, there's a healing story where Jesus heals um, a man's child. And in that passage, John chapter 4, verse 46 through 55, excuse me, 54, uh, Jesus says that Jews demand signs. They want a sign from God. It's not necessarily a wrong thing. It could become a wrong thing if they were too dependent on that, but it's not necessarily a wrong thing. Jesus acknowledges it, and the passage ends by saying, this was, in fact, the, I forget the number it is, but I'll say the second sign that he's doing across the Gospel of John, and there are some very notable signs that God does among the Jewish people in the Gospel of John. The other passage I was going to read, but I'm just going to allude to it, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And in that section in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that Jews demand a sign. And so the message of the cross, he says, is foolishness because they don't understand that sign immediately. They have to be shown what that sign means. I think many times we can be like that, wanting a sign from God. The question is, when God does a sign, do we understand it? And then, if we do understand it, will we submit to the God in the way which we're supposed to when we understand that sign? You know, again, many of you are new to our church in the last few weeks or even months. For some reason, some wonderful reason, we have an enormous influx of people in the healthcare industry. So this is a wonderful place to get injured uh, here if it happens at church property. Um, that's our market share here at, at, among churches. But I'll just say, my own story of coming to faith, um, I grew up in a Christian home, but there was this period of time in college where I became largely indifferent and began to build my life around um, athletic success, as much as I could carve out for myself, academic success, as much as I could carve out for myself. I was a strange person who took the ACT in high school uh, six times. So you, you would normally, East Coast, be doing more like the SAT, Midwest person. Uh, ACT was more prominent. Took it six times to try and get the best score I could, to get in the best college I could, to get the best scholarships I could. And that kind of mindset continued into college and it was miserable. Relationship, the other third thing was this relationship with a girlfriend that was also across one year, all three of these began to fall apart. And I began to, I guess, seek God, so to speak. But really what I was seeking were signs. Seeking experiences with God. I wanted God to do something in and through me that would then be the thing that would change things. So I can remember very uh, memorably going to a Christian concert because I thought if I go to a Christian concert, that will be the thing, this experience, this sign that can change my life. I think it was the Newsboys, some iteration of a band that has changed uh, members many times. But that was, I guess, what happens if you're big and been around for a while. But I remember that concert and I don't remember changing. And I remember thinking, I'll just go back to a Bible study. Maybe that will be the thing that changes me. I'll just have this experience. I'll receive these signs and God will change me in a moment. He didn't. At least not in the ways that I understood at the time. And then there was this Christian sports camp. And now that one did change me. But again, not in the ways I thought. I was looking for these experiences. Where I would go somewhere and I'd see, God would do this sign tell you more about that Christian camp next week if you come. But I think the people in the background of this passage 
Many of them had traveled to Jerusalem from very far places. We read about that in the beginning of the chapter. The nations, Peter says, or Luke as he records the story, were gathered there. People as far as Rome had gathered there. That's a long ways to get to Jerusalem back in the day. And if you're going to travel that far, I imagine that on the way they're gathered here for a Jewish festival. I imagine there was something inside of them going, could this be the year that God does a sign among us? I don't, it's not said explicitly in chapter 2, but I don't think it's a stretch to say that given what we know about the Jewish people in the Gospels and even what we read in chapter 1, that Jesus ascends or Jesus resurrected from the grave and the disciples look at him, is this the year you're going to do the thing? Is this the year you're going to sit on an earthly throne and throw out the Roman Empire? They're looking for a sign. The question that hangs over the passage is, do they understand the signs that God is doing among them? And I would just say, among us. And if they understand it, well, then they submit to the God who does that sign. That's the question that hangs over this passage. So, All of a sudden, unplanned, unscripted to those disciples that were gathered there to pray, God comes among them powerfully. They go out and they begin to preach in the temple courts. And surprisingly to them and those who hear, the people hear God preaching to them the story of the gospel in their own language. And as that happens, people say, verse 12 of chapter 2, what does this mean? They want an interpretation for the sign, the sign of preaching the gospel in their own language. And so Peter stands up in verse 14 and he begins a sermon. Now sort of in a helpful way and sort of perhaps in unhelpful ways, we've taken his one sermon and we're chopping it up into three sermons here at our church. Ben Bechtel helpfully talked through the first sermon point that Peter had. Peter goes to the book of Joel and he says that this sign of God speaking to you in your own language is the sign of God pouring out his spirit among us as was foretold in the book of Joel. That's verses 14 through 21. And then we come to verse 22 and we're going to have really the second point of Peter's sermon. The third really is the response But the second point of his sermon is Peter dives into two Old Testament passages and alludes to a third. Let me pick up this passage in verse 22 and read that again. We're just going to walk through this passage in the best way, most helpful way I can do with still moving with some speed. Verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. Hopefully that verse looks a little different to you now reading it given the introduction I just tried to give. The Jewish people were looking for signs and what Peter stresses here at the beginning of his sermon is that God has done thing among us. You know that, he says. But the question is, are they understanding these signs correctly? That's what the rest of Peter's sermon goes on to explain. So picking up again, verse 23 and verse 24, we read this. This Jesus, or this one, who God attested to with mighty signs, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified 
and killed by the hands of lawless men, Peter says. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Pause for a few minutes and point a few things out. Peter was saying in verse 22 that God did mighty works and signs through this Jesus. There was a density of miracles that took place in the life of Jesus, unprecedented in the world. Unprecedented even in the Old Testament. And one of those signs as you go into verse 22 and 20, or excuse me, 23 and 24 is the crucifixion. I highlight for you the language of the definite plan known by the foreknowledge of God. In other words, the cross of Jesus Christ was not plan B. Let that sink in. The most heinous act of evil ever perpetrated was not plan B. It's wild to think about. If Jesus was the most innocent person ever, and in fact, God in the flesh, the crucifixion of the Son of God is the most evil thing that's ever taken place. And yet we read here, and this is echoed in many other passages, that this was done according to the foreknowledge and plan of God. In other words, when Adam and Eve sinned, God did not go, well, what am I going to do now? The cross was planned before the foundation of the world. But the cross was a confusing thing to the Jewish people and what they expected about a Messiah. This passage uses the language of pangs. That's a strange word. We don't use it very often. Trying to be quite literal if you're looking at the English Standard Version. Uh, The word used there, it's a word that's used here in the New Testament related to birth. So Peter's mixing metaphors. You have a death metaphor, death couldn't hold him, and you have a birth metaphor with pangs, the, the kind of speaking of the labor pangs. And what Peter is trying to say is that Death could not hold Jesus in the same way when a woman comes to the point of labor, that baby's coming out, right? It's gotta happen now. I think of uh, when my oldest son was born, um, you know, every delivery has its own difficulties, but that one had difficulties like none of the others for uh, my wife. And after a very long delivery, it was not going well, and they're monitoring uh, mother and child kind of via heart, heart rate monitors, and it came to a point where the physicians and the nursing staff goes, this baby has to come out now. And so there was an emergency C-section, and everything went great, and everything was very hard, though. What Peter is saying here, like that, death could not hold Jesus. We have a Savior God's people have a savior that could not be held by death. But not being held by death follows death. And that was the confusing sign. If you were familiar with the Old Testament as these people were, and you might be, in the book of Deuteronomy it speaks of those who um, being hung on a tree in crucifixion. Now it wasn't like that, so in Galatians, that, that passage is echoed in the New Testament. It says that anyone who is hung on a tree is 
So there's not just the physical pain of that, but there is, it's a sign that that person is cursed by God. So you look at people who are on a tree being crucified, and if you're a Jewish person steeped in the Old Testament, you go, that person can't be loved by God because they're only be, that is only a sign that they're cursed. The cross is not something you would talk about in polite company. And so what began to happen is that the people of God began to read their Bible selectively. And we can't blame them for that. They were in a lot of pain. Their land had been occupied by invaders many times over. And what they wanted was someone who would rule and reign and get the bad guys out. But what that entailed was reading the Bible selectively. And we could be very guilty of the same thing. Reading those passages that give us the warm fuzzies, right? And encourage our hearts to the neglect of those passages that would challenge us more. And so they're not reading Genesis 3.15, maybe with so much frequency. This passage, yes, about a serpent crusher, but one who in the process of crushing evil would also bruise his heel. Or Isaiah 53, the story of a savior who is cut off from God's people and crushed for their iniquities. But then Peter goes to Psalm 16 and he leads into it in verse 25 saying that David says concerning him. David, King David in the Old Testament writing a hymn for the people of God foresees Jesus. Foresees of Messiah. I won't reread those verses but he rejoices. It touches all of David's body and his tongue and his heart and his, he's not shaken because he has this hope of the Messiah not being held by the grave. And then Peter interprets that in verse 29. I'll read these verses, 29, 30, 31, by saying this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, all the research I did is that they had built quite a marble structure there at David's tomb so they could have walked to it, could have traveled to it. And said, Peter's saying, David's still there. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet, that is David, he's both king and prophet and um, hymn writer, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, I'll come back to that, that's an allusion to a very prominent passage in the Old Testament, verse 31, he, as David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, of the Messiah, that he... That is, the Messiah was not abandoned to Hades, the place of the dead. Nor did his flesh, the Messiah's flesh, see corruption. Read verse 32 as well. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. It's a mouthful, a few things to point out. Uh, He quoted Psalm 16, and then he stands up to explain Psalm 16, or a portion thereof of Psalm 16. And Peter's main argument is that David, in writing Psalm 16, was in some ways writing about himself, but saying things that could only be true of someone who was far greater than himself, who we know to be as the Messiah, Jesus. And he alludes to, in verse 30, Peter that is, alludes to this passage where he says, knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, a lot of pronouns, that hymn is David. God knew that, 
Or so David knew that God had sworn an oath to him that he would put someone, one of his descendants, on the throne forever. Now that passage is 2 Samuel chapter 7. God comes to David, the significant point in David's kingship, and says, You, David, will have a son who sits on the throne forever. You will have an everlasting dynasty. Now, there are two ways to have an everlasting dynasty. If you're a king, you can have a son who has a son who has a son who has a son who continues to have sons and all of those sons in their own time sit on the throne. That is an everlasting dynasty. The problem is at this point in God's, in the people of God's history, that's not true anymore. There's whispers of a Davidic king, but that's long forgotten. Well, not long forgotten, but it was significantly disrupted in the exile that happened in 600-ish BC. There's no Davidic king on the throne. Rome is occupying Jerusalem. This is a problem for that promise. But there is a second way that this promise can be fulfilled. Which is what David, or excuse me, Peter gets into next. He begins to quote another psalm that speaks not just of the Christ being raised, but being then ascended to a throne of the universe. Let me read a few more verses, verse 33 through 36. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, that is the Christ, he, Jesus, has poured out this, this promise of the Holy Spirit, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This thing that happened among us, the preaching of the gospel, the hearing of that gospel in your own languages, you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Verse 34, for David did not ascend to the heavens, His body's still in a tomb. But he himself says, David himself says, and this is Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We'll come back to this. Verse 36, Peter's conclusion of the exposition of the Old Testament in a Christ-centered way what I hope we do when we preach here, the exposition of Scripture, seems Christ in all of Scripture, Peter says this, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, I hear an echo there of Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Your sin and God's salvation. That's the point of Peter's evangelistic message. So let me just try for a moment to give some sense to what might feel obscure to some of you. Perhaps not all of you. I'm looking out, I see a few of you who do have a Jewish background. But Peter quotes Psalm 110, which he says David wrote, which he did, and what he, he wrote speaking beyond what he could have known of 
the Messiah. Now, in Psalm 110, I'll just say, it is the most quoted of any New Testament, excuse me, any Old Testament passage in the New Testament. In other words, we could say it this way, this is the favorite passage of the New Testament author. So it's good to become familiar with it because you'll bump into it explicitly or hear it alluded to more than any other passage in the Old Testament. In the passage, the Lord said to my Lord, there are two Lords. In the Hebrew, this is more overt. The Lord Yahweh, in your Old Testament, uh, in the, written in English, it would be uh, Uh, A capital L full of like lowercase capitals. It's kind of weird to say it that way. But there's four letters in capital, but O-R-D is a little bit smaller. But they're all in capital letters. Lord, God the Father, Yahweh, says to my Lord. So David says to my Lord, Adonai, a different Lord. This Lord says to that Lord, sit over here. It's hard to gesture with one hand, all right? So bear with me. This Lord says to that Lord, sit over here at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And David's seeing this, and so, so the weirdness that needs explaining in this Old Testament passage and the New Testament gives explanation to is this. How does David see two lords? And how does David see a second lord looking to the future that is one of his sons? Now, it would be wonderful uh, if my children called me lord. <laughs> they don't. Uh, and that's fine. I would, that would be very strange if I mandated they call me, you shall call me Lord. Um, but it's weird for me to look into the future and call one of my children Lord. Right now, if I'm a king, while I have young children, I guess they could call me Lord, King, whatever. But it would be strange to look into the future of that dynasty and foresee one of them in the future that I would then call Lord. That's the ambiguity that hangs over Psalm 110. Is how does David, looking to the future, see a Lord uh, that then looks at the other Lord and says, You Lord, come over here, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The explanation that Peter gives and the other New Testament authors, in fact Jesus himself in the Gospels, is this. Jesus is that second Lord. And he has lived and died and rose again on the third day and then ascended to the throne of the universe where he sits in an everlasting dynasty, ruling and reigning until all of his enemies are under his feet and then he will come again. And this Jesus, whom they crucified, God made, don't get hung up on that language of made, like how did God make him, made known him as both Lord, King, and Christ, Messiah. A complex Messiah who both suffers first and then rises into glory. That's Peter's sermon. It's Peter's sermon. So what does it mean? Well, I don't know all that it means for you. I can tell you next week, we're going to go into the response of these individuals. That's what we'll focus on next week. How do they then respond to this sermon? How do we respond to this sermon? But let me just close with a few reflections. Go back to the metaphor of signs. How do we know 
God loves us? What is the sign that God loves us? I told this story this week, and I thought, you know what, that may be helpful to just tell it in church. So I'll tell it this morning, just briefly, and we'll close with one verse in prayer, and then we'll celebrate communion together. So I'm up here in a sling, right? Uh, I told you I injured my shoulder during church softball this summer. That is true. Um, but it's a little bit of a longer story than that. I won't make it a long story, but it's an old injury made worse this summer uh, that mandated a surgery. Fourteen and a half years ago, I'm graduating from college. And I'm in my fifth year of college. I managed to squeeze um, five years in, or four years into five. And uh, I'm at the very end, and I was a walk-on athlete, which just means you kind of beg to be on the team. And I wasn't really good enough to be, you know, scholarship athlete. But I knew if I trained really hard for five years, then maybe in my fifth year, um, I'd be able to compete and perhaps score one point for our team at the conference championship. And so it's time. Five years has come and gone, and the conference championship meet is around the corner. I'm 10 days away from that meet and graduating and maybe 12, 13 days away from a wedding and 14, 15 days or maybe 20 days away from starting a new job and moving to a new city. And I think to myself, I'm never going to be this strong again. I should totally put as much weight as I can on the bench press and lift it. So I did. And I was going to do a five rep max and I put it on and on the third rep, my shoulder dislocates and I, sorry to but I tear off half of my pectoral muscle off my bone. It hurts. <laughs> um, I don't compete in that track and field meet that I was training five years for. Um, I see the sports phys doctor's physician. I get an MRI. I talk to the trainers. And they say, you'll be fine. This will heal. The MRI doesn't show anything. And I have to go, Really? Because this was a pretty big injury. And was I just a walk-on athlete that you were shooing out the door? Or did you not see anything? Okay, so I'm trying to bring you into this kind of struggle about the goodness of God and the love of God that I've had in my life. Because two years go by and I'm not healed. I'm in St. Louis. I go hire my own sports physician, doctor guy, and I say, what's wrong with me? He comes back in with a textbook, which is not really what you want, but he shows me a picture. And he's like, this is what, this, see this thing right here? It's kind of gone. <laughs> and you should have seen me two weeks or two months after this happened, but we can't fix it now. What you, he meant by that is we can't fix this easily. And so I've been like, I don't know, I've been fine. But I've been living sort of at 50%, and then, then church softball this summer kind of took me to 5%, so I had a big surgery. Anyway, all that to say, there can be this tendency in my own life, and perhaps in yours, to, to look at the circumstances of your life and say, is this the sign that God loves me? And what I want to discourage you from doing is precisely that. The Jewish people here were looking for a sign. And what I want to tell you is there, there is a sweetness to looking at your life and say, ah, oh, things are stable. I have a job. <laughs> right? I have health. I have a 401k. I have whatever. I have a spouse. I have a spouse I love. <laughs> whatever it is. <laughs> Some of you, that's like a nervous laugh. 
The sign that God loves you is the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of the Son of God to the throne of the universe where he will come again and recreate this world into the way that it was supposed to be and wipe away every tear. That is the sign that God loves you. Close by reading Romans 5.8. I'll just read it from the screen. I don't want to flip there. But God, the Apostle Paul writes, shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Peter looks out at the group of people and says, you killed him. You were his enemy and he died for you and he loves you. And I just say, on the authority of the gospel, that God loves you. And whatever's going on in your life, I hope this morning as we participate in communion together, you just feel a hug from God. That he loves you and he cares about you. Would you join me in prayer as we invite the worship team to come back up? Heavenly Father, we sang and I prayed that all creatures of the Lord and the Christ would sing. I pray this morning that our hearts would sing, that we would rejoice because we know that you love us. Because when we were far from you, you died. Not when we were pulling ourselves up together, not when we were living for you, not because of our church attendance, not because of righteous deeds done to glorify you, you died for us, but when we were still enemies of the cross, you loved us. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.